Hey, I'm R. Alan Brooks. This is... I'm Dele Johnson, and uh, I'm editor-producer of How Art is Born, and you know Alan is the host. Yeah, so you see more of me, but Dele makes all the cool stuff happen behind the scenes, and in addition to getting cool guests and stuff like that. So uh, this episode we're doing, uh, we talk, I talked to Greg Deal, uh, Greg with three Gs. Three Gs. Yeah. You know, my middle name is Greg. I didn't know But that. it's only with two Gs. Three Gs are a lot of responsibility. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> So, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot uh, that Greg and I had in common, being both Gen X, talking about um, being isolated. Um, we both found a lot of comfort in comics. Uh, his art took a vastly different route than mine. Uh, but we also found a lot of comfort in hip-hop and then him at punk as well. Mm -hmm. And you'll see a lot of that stuff uh, kind of manifest in his art. But I think it was really cool to, to talk about, like, just what it meant for him to be a native artist and how all these different influences uh, kind of distilled into his art practice these days. Yeah, and he shared a lot about his journey um, working in sign making, working in right. Native American nonprofit organizations in Washington, D.C., working uh, at the Smithsonian um, American Indian Museum. Yeah. Um, and, and his journey through all of that and, um, talking about representation too. Mm -hmm. And Greg is our first Native American artist guest on right. How Art is Born. Um, so expanding the level of representation and the stories that we can tell on this podcast. Um, so that's pretty cool too. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say like the number one thing for me, uh, in hosting this podcast is, uh, being able to to look in, like into a window of other people's journey and and see how their art fits into their lives and uh, their growth as a human being it's inspiring but it's dope to see from all these different aspects and if it, it sort of like sort of feeds my soul mm -hmm. this was definitely one of those interviews that fed my soul so. yeah and it it was great to be a fly on the wall for that conversation and yeah. and hear his journey so right. really cool. Yeah, so I think you guys will enjoy it, so check it out. Welcome to How Art is Born, a podcast from the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver about the origins of artists and their creative and artistic practices. I'm your host, R. Allen Brooks, artist, writer, and professor. Today I'm joined by Denver-based multidisciplinary artist, activist, and disruptor, Greg Deal. Say hello. Hi. <laughs> All right, so to, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Uh, yeah, um... Well, I, you know, I always start off with saying that, uh, like, I'm a husband, a father, right uh, an artist, uh, a member of my tribal community. Um, I say sometimes activist, um, always a disruptor. Hmm. And, um, yeah, creator. Right on. Yeah. Uh, where, are you, where are you from originally? I grew up in Utah. Um, I, was, I was born in Tennessee. was only there until I was, like, two. That's where my father's from. And then um, we moved to Utah where my mom grew up. And uh, ended up in Park City for most of my growing up years. I'll, I'll uh, admit to a deal of ignorance about Utah, but uh, how, how was it for you growing up there? It was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was really terrible. Um, Park City, you know, there's three major ski resorts up there. The okay. Sundance Film Festival rolls through there. Um, it's sort of the Aspen of Utah. Yeah. And, um, and so... Uh, 
yeah, there's a lot of privilege, a lot of money, and my parents, there's that, like, Dave Chappelle joke, where, like, my parents made just enough money for us to be broke around, right. like, rich white people, and, uh, but it was a small town. My graduating class was, like, 100 kids. Hmm. Um, there was no diversity. There was, like, one black kid, uh, a, a Mexican girl that I knew, and then everybody who was actually from Mexico were sort of sequestered yeah. separately, so they, they were, like, segregated away huh. from everybody else. So it was, like, me and my sister and, like, maybe two other people That's of interesting. color. I knew one Jewish girl, and that was, that was <laughs> about something. it. Yeah, no, that was it. All right, so we're going to talk about your artistic journey in a second, but I want to know, uh, so growing up in that environment, how did you sort of find your way to connecting strongly with your culture, your, you know, heritage, et cetera. I mean, I'm, I'm a child of the eighties and nineties. Yeah. So, um, especially like, you know, the, my formative years being the late eighties right. into the nineties. Um, that means I'm being influenced by hip hop and punk rock and, yeah. you know, like, uh, Spike Lee was a huge influence. Like seeing the autobiography of Malcolm X was mind blowing to me. Public enemy was just mind blowing to me. Okay. And, those things led me to Alex Haley's uh, autobiography of Malcolm X and right. then starting to ask some pretty serious questions um, that led me sort of back into uh, my own people, my own culture, and, mm. and recognizing that there's value uh, in those places because I was seeing value in other black and brown people yeah. um, sort of articulating it uh, artistically, and, and that really uh, that changed my life. Mm. It's interesting because we're, you know, we're both Gen X, right? So, yeah. like, I think how far the world has come in a time, I feel like we've been alive, right? Yeah. Like, I think about, you know, five years old, my pop uh, forbade me to watch Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan, like the black and white Tarzan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I snuck and watched him anyway. And I came to him one day and I was like, Dad, are white men stronger than black men? And he was like, you've been watching Tarzan, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Because Johnny Weissmuller, he would like jump down into a group of Africans and just push them over with one hand and they would all fall, you know. <laughs> and like uh, to come from that to like where we are now, mm. you know. I mean, and so obviously because of your art and um, the the voice you have and the stuff you've worked in, it makes you think about native representation very specifically. Yeah. Because like, uh, you know, I think probably one, one of the first Indian uh, represent. I did air quotes for people who were just listening, but uh, image that I saw was the the guy who was crying for yeah. pollution. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it, it, so the, I guess there's a couple of things. Um, one is America just doesn't have really context of hmm. like even now uh, Americans in general don't have context of what a native person is. Um, my mom's generation, uh, they were either very proud or they're very uh, ashamed mm. of who they were. And my mom was the latter. And so I had to figure a lot of that stuff wow. out on my own. Yeah. Um, representation, you know, was Iron Eyes Cody, the crying Indian, mm. uh, as well as uh, Last Mohicans, right. you know, the Dances with Wolves, sports mascots, Looney Tunes had some pretty uh, oh, yeah. crazy representation that, that was... Um, Awful for everybody, not just Native people. But, right, because there's um, the whole thing with Bugs Bunny yeah, and Blackface and no, Mammy. Totally, and, yeah. and you know Tom and Jerry and all right. that stuff. But, um, yeah, no, I, I had to figure it out, and I got my hands on some books and heard some music, and it just kind of got the ball rolling. Um, but I also think about, like, my kids now where they don't have to deal with that. I mean, right. there's still issues of stereotype and representation, but they also have access to representation, they can yeah. look it up, they can find it. 
And um, there's a native Twitter, there's a native TikTok, and there's a native Instagram. So th that representation is there in a way that just simply was not for mm. our generation. Hmm. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this. But uh, what was the first art that spoke to you? Oh, gosh. And if you can't remember a specific thing, but just sort of a period, like, you know? I mean, comic book stuff was something that was important. Yeah. Like, uh, a lot of my artistic journey was... Um, uh, not art school. I didn't have an art teacher right. that liked me and I was not real good with structure. And, um, so for me it was like comic books, comic mm. book drawing. Um, also the storylines go with that cause it really, and this is, and this is what's really hard because now like I know more about like the superhero sort of genre and, right. and how rooted that is in, in white supremacy, but mm. also like no, that there is also sort of like a being on the outs story, the the person that's different and right. is not fitting in, and so that that spoke to me. Are you doing like X Men? Yeah. yeah, 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 and uh, it wouldn't escape, you know, yeah. like being bullied at school and then being able to read comic books and sort of escape from that stuff. And hmm. but I, I but that's where I learned to draw. I learned to draw, you know, muscles, yeah. and heads, and you know all that. Even though it's you know character exaggerated, right? Yeah. yeah. But you know, it's the same thing for me, you know, like that's, I mean, comics were it, man. And yeah. I think uh, being somebody who liked words and liked art and felt like an outcast, yeah. comic books had both. And then hip hop, you know, because mm -hmm. even though uh, people act as if hip hop lacks intelligence, it is a place to like uh, engage in a love of words, you know? Yeah. So it got me deep into it. So I was like battle rapping and stuff for a lot of years and all that. You know, that's awesome. Yeah, my, I was having this conversation with my kids because you know De La Soul yeah. getting getting their catalog and releasing Finally. it. And so I'm, I tell my kids these stories about all these groups and where they come from. And right. it's just like when they did Three Feet High Rising, they were 20 years old. Right. Like they were kids, and how innovative that stuff was. So yeah, that stuff's no joke. Those mm. are those are innovative creators mm. that made an entire generation of music that didn't exist until they made it, and that's crazy. So, okay, just for the sake of uh, the comic book geek part, and, uh, <laughs> I want to, you know, I was thinking about, like, what Native representation was like, and, and these won't be the only questions I ask you, I promise. But, yeah, no, you're good. But Native representation in comics, I was thinking about uh, Danny Moonstar, mm. uh, I was thinking about uh, what's the dude who died who was like part of X Men. Uh, he had the oh man, oh, I don't even remember. But he was with the uh, the like original like the original reboot. So yeah, um, you know, and he had like a Thunderbird. Yeah, uh, for me, um, there was a GI Joe that was like native. Oh yeah, I remember him. And, yeah, and there was a GI Joe comic books too. Yeah, and so he had, like, um, a dog. No, yeah, a wolf. I think you're right. I think he did have an animal because that speaks to the you know the yes. animal tropes, right? Um, and um, it was also like Justice League, hmm. the Apache uh, oh, chief, Apache chief just like yells a nuck chuck, a nuck chuck, which yeah. is like this nonsensical word yeah. to like grow really big and right. uh, space ghost coast to coast. Like redid that in the most hilarious way. I saw that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Couldn't but, and couldn't enlarge. Yep. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> Google it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because, you know, I think for myself, like reading comics and loving them and trying to find uh, black characters, you know, mm. like um, there was always kind of, you know, they were, you know, they'd be in the background. There would be ones I wanted to know more about, you know, and it, it's, just, it's just an interesting journey being 
not a white boy reading comics through the 80s and 90s, you know? Yeah, my impression on um, comics for, like, native representation is um, it, I don't think it was as deliberate as it was, you know, because when Luke Cage came out, there was a whole sort of black exploitation, yeah. black movement that was happening there. Right. Like, I don't I don't think the native characters in comics were were, were quite as uh, thought out mm. and informed. Yeah. Um, and so the representation was there, but it like leaned on a lot of tropes and right. that's been changing super dramatically in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Right. And it's, uh, it's really, really cool to see natives actually inform characters in comic books. That's dope, man. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the only other person I was thinking of was there was somebody in Legion of Superheroes, but I don't remember her name. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, Wolverine and Spider-Man were, like, always my guys. Nice. And I just I always thought about how their powers. Their, it wasn't them. It was their powers. Right. And just how, you know, having that stuff would, again, be an escape, you know. Right. Okay. So you're reading the comics and you start drawing. Um, what was the point that, like, you identified with, like, I want to make art. I'm an artist. Like, what was that like for you? I don't, I don't think I was ever in a place, like, I was never in a place where um, that was ever given to me as an option. Mm. And um, I grew up in, you know, a working class home. My father was a car mechanic. My mom was a bus driver mm. and sometimes answered phones for a chiropractor, right. you know, in, in the afternoons. Um, but, like, I never thought about school. Oh. I never thought about the future. Um, I was mostly just trying to survive, right. like with the amount of bullying and the amount of stuff that was going on. All I was doing was skating and drawing and right. going to shows and um, and going to like concerts and stuff. And so I was just sort of day to day and I wasn't really thinking about that. Um, I knew that, that the creative capital that I could create by mm. drawing would like get me next to the girl that I liked, right. you know, or, you know, create friends and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea that I could do that as a profession, like I, I had this sort of fleeting thought that like, oh, I could be an animator. Maybe I could be an animator. Mm -hmm. um, but I did terrible in school and uh, had no encouragement to, to better myself or to, to learn those skills properly Yeah. Um, until I got older and just sort of exposed myself to it. Um, I kind of had a tough upbringing, so I... My father was an artist and he was like a photographer huh. and he was a graphic designer. He did all these things, but you know, he had me when I was 19 years old mm -hmm. and, uh, my mom never really valued school. I mean, to the degree that when I did get in college and I called her and I right. said, Hey, I got into a university and she's like, why? Huh. <laughs> and, wow. and, and so I just, I don't think that she really understood the value of education and my dad wanted to do something and never never was able to get there until him and my mom divorced. And then he went to school and he did the huh. things he wanted to do. And so he finished his time on this earth doing a job that he loved to do oh, that he cool went to college for. And, um, but when I was a kid, the man was, he was a hard man. He was yeah. angry. So there wasn't like, I would bring stuff to him uh -huh. because I wanted his approval. Right. And he was always dismissive about mm. it and just never said anything. So, I had this thing sort of in spite of my environment, but at the same time, I got these photographs that he took when I was, you know, as young as two, three, you know, all the way up of me drawing. Like he took pictures oh. of me drawing. That's so interesting. And yeah. So it was, it was a really sort of clash of, uh, I don't know, statements that yeah. were being made in that as well. 
Um, so it wasn't until I got older that I took it seriously. MCA Denver at the Holiday Theater is a year-round performance and event space that is an extension of the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver. The Holiday is home to a spectrum of creative expression, including original productions, live music, film screenings, artist talks, and serial programming like Mixed Taste and Cinema Azteca, as well as performances and events presented by other cultural organizations. The theater is also available for private rentals. Visit mcadenver.org forward slash holiday dash theater to learn more. Okay, so is this, because uh, you talked about how when you got older, you found your way to sort of connecting with culture, like yeah. your culture specifically. Uh, was that parallel to you connecting with the idea of yourself no. as an artist? No, okay. uh, the Native connection uh, built in high school. Okay. Um, really just full force, like I forced my mom to recognize it, mm. um, who worked really hard to not recognize it. Yeah. And, um, but my, my dad kicked me out when I was 17, so... Mm. You know, I dropped out of high school and was just working. And I mean, he they taught me to work, so I knew how to work. Yeah. And um, and so I worked and did a little bit of drawing here and there. And it wasn't until I was twenty four, and I and, and I was doing murals and graffiti like in the mix in yeah. all of that. And um, which, of course, you know, in the early nineties was not was not respected. It was right. given no value at all. And. Um, but when I met my wife and, you know, I went to college, I was 24 and that's when like suddenly I had access oh, to studios and professors uh -huh. and all kinds of stuff. And it just opened everything up for me. What did you go to school for? Uh, I went for painting. Okay. Um, so I went to uh, George Mason University, which is in Fairfax, Virginia, right outside of D.C. Okay. And... Um, yeah, I was a film major to start. Uh, my wife said I wasn't going to make any money on that, and I should change my major. <laughs> so I and I took a I had to take an art class. I had to take a you know, one hundred and one class. And right. The professor saw something, and he was a total jerk to everybody, huh. but he was really nice to me because <laughs> he saw That's some talent. Right. Yeah. And um and so I changed it to to graphic design. Okay. And um but I got really into drawing and painting and. Uh, even to the degree that I went to the department head for graphic design and was just like, hey, like, I know the graphic design requirement is to create this publication, but like, could I do a show with my paintings and then I'll just build all the collateral materials and go with it to, you know, to, to appease the graphic design um, requirements. So I was like, I'll build a website, I'll build a brochure, I'll like do all the yeah, things. You're negotiating, man. Yeah. yeah. And right. she got really mad and was just like, sounds like you want to be a painter, not a graphic designer. And huh. she, like without my permission or anything, she, she kicked me out of the program Damn. and made me an art major. And I was like, all right, well, I guess this is happening. And I couldn't double major. Um, so I have the same amount of classes as the graphic design students, but I had to take a couple extras, you know, for the painting requirements. That's crazy, man. Yeah, it was a little crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because, you know, like uh, so many people's story, like they have this, uh, oh, like the power educators, right? Yeah. Like how they can like um, open you up to things. They can um, show you new resources, expose you to new ideas. Yeah. And then the, the purpose of you being in school is to grow and to learn what it is that you, what you want to be your path. Yeah. And so for her to be like angry with you about it and to like sort of penalize you for it. And I was hungry. Yeah. Man, I was so hungry. Um, but I also recognized that like I want to be a painter. There's this graffiti, you know, background. So I understand, you know, spray paint right. and, and how that works. 
Um, but being able to do graphic design, being able to do film editing, like I took all the core film classes when yeah. I was a film major. So I wanted to know how to do all of those things because I think I just inherently knew I'd be able to apply them to my practice. Yeah. And I do. And I have. Dope. Yeah. Okay. So you're in school and you've gone from this uh, not having access. Suddenly you have access to all these things. You're in this painting program. Um, what was it like, man? Did like did, did it feel like the world opened up to you in a different way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was young, um, I legitimately had a big chip on my shoulder because um, I think I was just a little prick, man. Uh, I, I really just had a big chip on my shoulder. Um, and as I've gotten older, I'm just thinking back, and I'm just like, oh man, like I was a total dick. <laughs> and uh, and I and I feel bad about that, but I think it was also just very defensive and just and had a, a big chip on my shoulder, like my father. Yeah, based on what you shared, it sounded like you had yeah. reason to be yeah. There. So, um, yeah, I, I just was not structured. I couldn't handle it very yeah. well. I, somebody would tell me how to do something and I would just get like kind of mad about it. Uh. And, um, and so I just like, I had an art class and had an art teacher and, and she, I didn't handle the structure, but also she was like just a total jerk mm. to me about everything. And, and now it's like on Facebook, she'll send me messages on Facebook and like, <laughs> I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. because, because nobody in high school helped me. Right. Uh, there was a couple of our teachers and none of them helped me and they were all like pretty biased against me. Right. And, um, so yeah, when I, when I got to college, uh, yeah, it was a whole new world. Like mm. it, and it wasn't just a professor kindly saying something to me because DC is super diverse. Mm. And so the, the biases are just not the same as they are in right. Utah. So having a professor take me in and, show me to do something or seeing a value in me and my abilities, um, changed everything. Hmm. And, and, and then on top of that, you know, I have access to the national gallery and the Hershore and right. like I'm seeing real art in person. And then we have to go to New York once a semester. So oh, I'm like going up to the Guggenheim, going up to the Met, like it yeah, was crazy yeah. how just mind blowing it was. And, and I maintain this even now that like, our youth, you know, particularly youth of color, like they don't need any of us to tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. They just need to see what's possible. Right. Because seeing what's possible changed everything for me. Hmm. Oh, that's like the pull quote of the episode right there. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting, man, to hear you talk about your high school experience because I definitely had teachers shitting on me for uh, drawing in comic book style and, and hip hop, you know. And it's funny that those two things that were like terrible like you know cast down mm -hmm. low art in the 80s are now kind of running the world you know yeah yeah and i i think um like the aesthetic of punk rock is like kind of in that same vein yeah, I agree. and uh yeah um i mean i i was already on the outside so those things just like put me back on the outside i mean the the first the first record uh that i bought for um on my own with my own money was, was De La Soul, nice. Three Feet High and Rising. And, and just the oddity of those guys spoke to me, but like they were also talking about a cultural experience that I didn't know, but there is some parallels in just being broke. Yeah. You know, being broke in New York is probably not that much different than being broke, you know, in Utah. Right. And, um, and so those experiences spoke a lot to me. Um, so yeah, I was being told that those things were, not good or that it was anti-social anti culture. That's what right, they called it back right. then. 
And um, and it wasn't like those things. Those things saved my life. I, yeah. like, I honestly and truly believe that I probably would have taken my own life if it mm. wasn't for hip hop and punk rock. It's so interesting that you mentioned De La Soul, man, because that, that they're like one of my favorite groups, right? And um, I entered and won a ping pong competition in school because De La Soul is dead. <laughs> the CD was the yeah. prize, and I was like, I gotta win this. You know, I need De La Soul is dead. And that, that, it feels like one of the weirdest way to get a rap album, but it feels like the right way to get a De La Soul album. Do you know what absolutely, I'm absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, rest in peace, True Goy. Yes. And just uh, what a massive loss because they are very clearly having a resurgence right, right now. And I'm like sharing with my kids in real time yeah. what I experienced also in real time and uh yeah it's it's just one of the coolest things because they are so accessible right as as artists as well like to to young people and so clearly themselves like they have such a distinct voice always the whole time you know yeah like there's no posturing like they're they're uh, you know a bunch of weirdos and yeah uh, and they just do weird stuff and you get like maybe 80 percent of it and then like 30 years later, you know, you might get it like, oh, that's what they were saying there. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, I think the, the, the realism of, of those things are what give them value. Right. That's why punk rock always appealed to me as well, because it's like realistic, you mm-hmm. know, and you're listening to Jello Biafra with, you know, Dead Kennedys and he's saying some crazy stuff. But like even today I hear that and I'm just like, yeah, no, that right. That, I feel that. And my kid, my my oldest kid, Sage, mm-hmm. um, they're the same way. They're like, yeah, that's the Nazi punks. Fuck off. So. Right. <laughs> All right. So, okay. You do the college thing. Um, you come out. What's your next step? Like on the path to being the artist, you are the disruptor now. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think college prepares you. Right. Like, unless you're going to a, like a RISD. Right. Right. <laughs> Colleges don't prepare you for business. Mm-hmm. And, that's um, true. And so I was lucky enough to have a little bit of hustle in my heart. Yeah. And because that's a big part of the game. And um, I left school like, okay, I'm an oil painter. I'm going to be an oil painter. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, I was entering group shows and I was not getting in because right. nobody wanted my shitty little oil paintings. Uh. And um, at the same time that that was happening, you know, like uh, lowbrow was really making, a, a, you know, a big a big stink in the art world. And so um, I was recognizing that and seeing that and like recognizing the processes and thinking through that. Um, But it took me a long time to really wrap my head around that because I needed to figure out what my voice was. I needed to figure out what my style was because I wasn't like oil painting's not going to cut it. There's better oil painters out there than me. And um, so uh, right out of school, I worked for a sign, the sign industry, mm-hmm. um, desperately clamoring at a job at the National Museum of American Indians because it was opening that year okay. on the National Mall. And so I was working this uh, sign job, and my boss, um, his name was Shane. He was this white dude in Manassas, Virginia, which is close enough to be Central Virginia to you know bring about some of the some of the choice words that you might hear from you know uh, someone from the South, gotcha. uh, white man from the South, and. Um, yeah, he, he was calling me Tonto every day, huh. and it was crazy. And, and so this one day, the museum was opening, and I had an application in. I had an in, but I hadn't been given the call yet. Right. So the day it was opening, the National Mall had, like, 
natives came from all over the country to celebrate the opening of this museum. Hmm. This is in 2004. Okay. And um, like September. And so I knew it was opening and I was restless that day and I was upset and my wife knew I was upset and she was just like, just, you'll be okay. Just go to work, you know, just do what you got to do. And I was at work for two hours and I'm like, no, I got to go. Hmm. And so I went and I talked to Shane. I was like, Hey, I got to take off. I'm like, there's this thing going on. And he kind of made fun of me for it. And, uh, and I was mad. And right. so I left. And so I'm literally putting gas in my car at the gas station about to get on 95 to head up into DC. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I get a call, uh, from the national museum of American Indians offering me the job. Oh, man. And I was like, just on cloud nine. So I drive up into DC and there was more natives than I've ever seen in my life. They were covering the national mall from the Washington monument all the way up to the Capitol building where they had a stage erected to like talk about what they're doing there. I was at the million man March and I had a similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's so overwhelming. Like, you know, here I am like an adult trying not to cry like a baby because it's just crazy. So, um, I worked at the Indian museum. I was there for, um, uh, well, I was there until I think summer 2005. Okay. Um, I happened to be in the right place at the right time um, because there was a performance artist that I had learned about in school mm-hmm. a year earlier in a performance art class I took that was just kind of stupid. Yeah. Um, but the professor introduced me to his work, okay. um, James Luna. And, um, and I had another class where we were learning about the Venice Biennale. And a year later... Um, James was under sort of the, the umbrella of the National Museum of American Indians, mm-hmm. um, got a, a grant from the Ford Foundation and was taking James to the Venice Biennale um, for an off-site art installation yeah. that he was going to do. And, um, and the Ford Foundation told them, like, this needs to benefit a youth of some kind. So they were like, okay, it's a mentorship program. It was totally ad hoc. Like, right. I was just in the right place. They're like, Greg has an art degree. He can go. <laughs> And um, so, like a year later, I'm at the Venice Biennale with James Luna huh. in in Venice, Italy, wow. and um, that changed everything. That yeah. that I mean, as as transformative as school was, sort of opening up the world, watching James, being hanging out with James, somebody who I studied very heavily, be, not because he was a performance artist, but because he was an unapologetic native voice. Like he just was who he was. And I was trying to figure that out because I was trying to do in school like, okay, I need to be a native artist, so I have to do like a checklist. I have to do these things. And uh-huh. it just came out so trite and so contrived. And so um, being able to watch him work was just crazy for me. That's seeing what was possible. That's the thing that you brought yeah. up earlier. Yeah, okay. because even James didn't give me advice or anything. Yeah. But James did pull me into his performances. Huh. And what's crazy about this conversation yeah. is uh, I curated this show up at Longmont Museum that's um, that's going to be open, I guess, for another few months. And um, there's an article that's written by a curator at the Denver Art Museum, John mm-hmm. Lukovic. And he makes mention of James Luna and in parentheses, like, you know, Greg went to with James to the Venice oh. Biennale. So the curator at the museum reached out and he was just like, John makes this mention, like, do you have photographs? I was like, I don't have photographs, but I can get in touch with the museum right. and see what they got. So I'm in touch with the photographer that I was kicking it with there. <laughs> wow. She sends me a contact sheet of all the photographs from the Venice Biennale. And I'm looking at these photographs for the first time in 18 years. Wow. 
and uh, am just blown away because there's things I d- didn't remember. Right. And um, yeah, there's photographs of James and I. Hmm. Like he pulled me into his performances, and I remembered it that he pulled me in sort of last minute. Right. I was in it the entire time. Huh. Like I had, I didn't even realize because I think I was just so overwhelmed. Right. That I was in his performances for the entire time at the Venice Biennale, like hmm. right out of college. And That's uh, dope, man. yeah, well, when you come home from that, like I can't work at the Smithsonian anymore. Like <laughs> I, I got, I got work to do. I got yeah. business to do. So did, it was, a, did it, so it changed your mind state some. Yeah. Like, uh, but did it open up new opportunities or was it just the mind state? You were like, okay, I'm just hustling on another level. It definitely didn't open up new opportunities. Um, it was all uh, a mindset yeah. and um, realizing that something's possible. You know, when I finished school, my wife, you know, we've been married for 24 years this year and Dope. you know, bless her heart. She was super pragmatic when, mm. when I finished and she's like, what do you want to do? Hmm. I was like, I want to be an artist. And she's like, no, <laughs> that's, that's not practical. Cause uh, like, you know, when I have a family when I have kids right. and you can't do that and doing that. And, um, and so here I am, you know, full circle, like leaving the, and, and my wife and I had been through some things. And so, by the time I got back to the to the Indian Museum after Venice, yeah, I was like, "This is what I want to do," and I made a plan. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just a statement; like I had a plan. And uh, my wife trusted me, hmm. and um, because she was working a job and making good money, and I was making okay money right out of college, working with the Smithsonian, right, good benefits. We owned a house. She mm-hmm. did so well that we owned a house like a year after we got married. And this is, you know, early 2000s. We bought a 2,400 square foot house in, you know, 2000. And then when 9-11 happened, that housing market just blew up. Right. And and so, yeah, we had a plan. And I left and I was working um, freelance design work with the intent of doing my work on the side. Okay. Did not work at all. Because when you're running your own business, you have to wear all the hats. It's true. And uh, so I was working around the clock, and it was not working. Um, The straw that broke the camel's back was 2008, the recession. Right. Um, Within two weeks, and D.C. is one of these cities where when something like that happens, when a recession happens, like it hits immediately. Mm -hmm. And so the news is saying recession. Within two weeks, every single contract that I had was gone. And I had like hundreds of thousands of dollars reoccurring contracts that were gone in two weeks. So then it's like a now what? I took a job as a graphic designer. I was only there for 10 months and got let go because I didn't have enough work. Hmm. And it was was winter 2009. And my wife and I, my wife's like, we don't have any money. So can you make something for our moms for Christmas? And I said, yeah. And I made something. And here I am looking at this thing I made. And I'm saying to my wife, I was like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand why I would have these abilities, why the creator would give me these abilities Mm -hmm. and I can't provide for my family. Hmm. And my wife had the wherewithal to say, yeah, why indeed? And we just sort of talked it through, made a plan. And, uh, like right after Christmas, it was like, all right, tomorrow I'm going to be an artist. And, uh, and that's what we did. And, we worked out a business plan. We were hustling some workout, and I was trying to get my work up. And so this is like 2010, okay. and um, and I started making connections. And there was no contemporary art scene in DC. Like the DC art scene is uh, mostly these um, 
you know, like well-polished artists that are doing watercolors and oil paintings and photography and all the galleries are like their clientele are, you know, politicians and, you know, rich right. lobbyists that want to put, you know, paintings in their brownstones on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't a scene, but there was this group of people you know, kind of coming off of the tales of um, the, the explosion of lowbrow music or mm -hmm. lowbrow uh, art scene where we just hustled and figured it out. There was a guys that were like putting together, um, uh, they were putting together pop-up shows and they were calling themselves No Kings Collective. Okay. And it was like two guys. <laughs> so I think technically that's the smallest collective you can have. Um, <laughs> but they were they were doing these shows and then I was like showing up and they were letting me in and I was just so, swinging for the fences. Like every extra money we had was put into new work. And huh. um, yeah, so it was like trying to make my bones and figure it out. But in that time, I was also figuring out like I needed to borrow from this artistic experience and this artistic so it wasn't oil paintings it was mm -hmm. spray paint and stencils and working with vinyl because i worked in the sign industry and i happened to have a vinyl plotter and it was you know trying to figure out how all these different things work right so i could figure out what tools that i need to use and so uh, i think what taught me probably as much as school if not more was um necessity mm. you know i had to put food on the table and figure out how to make it work Really dope, man. One, I want to say, uh, I feel like this this story of your artistic journey is also the story of like your wife's you and you and your wife's partnership. Yeah, you know, which is really inspiring and dope to hear. Yeah, she's hardcore, man. Yeah, <laughs> she sounds like it. She's no joke, but and she reminded me too. She's like a lesser woman would have left you. Like, <laughs> I was like, okay, I know. <laughs> I love you. Thank Word. you. <laughs> But then also it sounds like you were finding your artistic voice. Um, it was the uh, accumulation of all your life's experiences up to that point. Yeah. And uh, you bring in all that in and then it, what comes out of it yeah. becomes you. Well, it was also, there was another thing that happened because during that recession, all those contracts I lost yeah. were all native nonprofits. Like huh. every major native nonprofit is based out of Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. And so I lose all those contracts, and that's okay. No sour grapes, I get it. Yeah. Um, but a couple of those businesses were hiring. And so I was like, I just lost his work. Like, I could use a job. You right. know me. You right. know what I'm capable of. And um, every last one of them, like, didn't hire me. Hmm. So I thought I was playing by the rules. And I thought that I was, like, not just the business rules, but also the cultural rules. Right. Like, I was doing the things I was supposed to be doing. And I became so incensed that I remember in the process of like taking the plunge of just like, okay, we're just going to concentrate on the art. Um, I remember saying to my wife, cause I got a, a solo show, this little linky dink solo show on this little corner off of U street in DC. Okay. And, um, I said, I don't want to be a native artist. Hmm. I just want to be an artist. And my wife's like, yeah, I don't blame you. And I, I was pretty mad about the sort of cultural obligations and then it not paying off and right. not helping me out. And uh, because I had kids, you know, yeah. I have like native kids and like, why, why is this business giving this job to like a white dude right out of college when I've like can do the job and I have children and right. you know, like, I, I feel like that there should be, you know, a, a give or take there. Yeah. And, um, and it was that abandonment mm. was sort of, I always pictured as like, I had this structure in my head and when that happened, like I demolished that entire structure. Mm. And, and the rebuilding of that structure happened through my artistic process and it ended up arriving in a natural way. So all those contrived things I created in yeah. college 
were no longer contrived. The things that arrived and came through the work came through because they were real, because they were there, because they were true, and not because I was trying to follow some formula or felt forced to have to do those things. That's dope, man. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's painful, though, too. It is. We right. have cultural expectations. Yeah. Like, we love our people. We love our communities. And when, to be let down uh, by anybody that you've believed in for most of your life is, uh, is heartbreaking. Yeah, but also, like... Uh, you know, I've had some similar experiences uh, dealing with like uh, black structures or black artists or whatever. And uh, one of the things that I've had to realize is, and uh, this is, you don't have to have the same you know thought that I have, but for me, it was basically like they are under the weight of the oppression that I'm fighting, sure. you know? Um, and so like some of the things that end up hurting me within our community is a result of those Historical traumas. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, like, if you're trying to create something as a, a, an artist of color and you're trying to do it within your own community, sometimes you can't be weighted down by trying to heal everyone no. around you in order to move forward. You know, sometimes you just got to move forward and yeah. let the thing that you create heal them, you know? I I, I sort of uh, articulated it as um, that I stopped asking for permission. Yeah. And um, that, Disruptor. Like, I don't go. I don't go to somebody. I don't. I don't even go to my elders mm -hmm. and say like, "Should I? Could I? You know, mm -hmm. will I?" I don't seek permission. Yeah. Um, I follow a formula of truth. Like, if it's true, if it's true, if it's mine, if what I'm saying is is true, and I can back that up. Yeah. Um, then I can say it. That's my experience. Does that bring you into uh, like like opposition with the elders and stuff like no. that? Yeah? No. My tribe's like super laid back. Okay. Um, so there's you know traditions and things but um, the obligations aren't as heavy as they are in other communities um, if anything my tribe's been super hands-off yeah until they're not okay. and so like something comes up and they're like hey that's one of ours like huh, they're and, and so I don't don't get a lot of that in fact I, I probably get more grief from people of other tribal nations than I do from my own huh. um, but yeah you know I just I, I it it stinks to say because I think everybody's trying to survive right, you know, that, right. that weight of oppression that historical trauma, um, and so I can't count on anybody, but right. I'm there if they need me, and uh, I, and I accept there. it. Yeah, I accept it. Okay, so turning point for me was I watched uh, this. Are you familiar with Melvin Van Peebles? Yeah. Okay, so I watched a documentary about him called uh, "How to Eat Your Watermelon and White Company and Enjoy It." I've mentioned mm. it on this podcast before. But one of the, I was at this place where I was trying to make everything black. Like, you know, I was like, okay, well, this is when I was focused mostly on music more than comics. And I was like, yeah, okay, uh, the whole live band's going to be black. The producer, everybody, I'm, we're going to do this. It's going to yeah. be something that we do. And, uh, and I found a lot of, like, opposition, jealousy, people struggling with their own um, fears yeah. and, and becoming obstacles to me. And uh, it, it was hurtful, and it felt like a betrayal, and I was angry about it. And... But when I watched Mel, the, the documentary about Melvin, Melvin really kind of took the position of the thing that I create is healing to my culture. Mm. And it doesn't matter who helps me create it, you know, but I'm gonna get this done. Yeah. So if you ain't gonna help me, get out the way. You know what I'm yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do and however you gotta do it. Um, I accidentally put a band together. Uh, 
and we're I think we're releasing next week or oh. or not next week uh, next month or, oh, or nice. in May. But um, is it a is a punk thing? Yeah, it's a little punk thing. Okay. Uh, kind of spoken word and and punk stuff, but. Yeah, I mean, I, when we started putting it together, like somebody said, well, you know, you should have native uh, native musicians working right. with you, and it's just like, yeah, no, I'm down to work with whoever, you know, yeah. and and um, I don't know, it's just this weird thing that we do where it's just like our stuff has to be purely this, right. um, whereas like you know. <laughs> n- white artists don't do that <laughs> like they, they use whatever whatever they have the yeah. means to um if it, in a perfect world i would love to do that yeah um but you know i gotta work with what i got and that's okay and also listen i got enough black in my soul to carry it every all the project <laughs> forward you know what I'm saying? So. i have enough black in my soul too but i think it's a different kind of black <laughs> uh different kind of darkness punk rock right <laughs> Are you going to go deep goth? Is that what you're talking? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, uh, everybody frustrates me. And so <laughs> I'm just like, uh. that's That's how a disruptor is born. Okay, I want to ask you. So we moved into this part where you were talking about um, uh, not asking for permission. So now I think uh, it's important to know, like, when you create art, because so much of your stuff has social commentary. Yeah. Um, so much of it is uh, sort of like provoking. Um what what is what do you want people to experience? Like, what's your goal when you're creating art? Are you thinking about your catharsis? Are you thinking about how it impacts the world? Like, what's happening? I'm mostly thinking about myself. Huh. Um, I, I I've come to the conclusion, and and I'm not stuck on this. I, I believe that there's fluidity to it because um, I think that uh, things ebb and flow, particularly for contemporary artists. Yeah. Um, I'm under the impression that contemporary art is personal, hmm. and um, you know, I saw. Jeffrey Gibson's show at uh, the Denver Art Museum, Like a Hammer. Okay. And I was going through the exhibition with the curator, and he was explaining a bunch of things to me hmm. as we were going through it. And uh, something that Jeffrey Gibson does is he incorporates, like, lyrics. Okay. He's got, like, these huge beaded pieces and, like, lyrics. Yeah. Or, or statements from speeches from his, his favorite, you know, from his favorite activists and orators. Um, and it blew my mind i was like you can do that and like and and even as a graphic designer like it just never dawned on me right to do that and um and so i started creating work that is uh my experience um but also trying to articulate in a way that makes sense to me yeah and um and so i recognize that there's a shared experience i recognize that my experience may also be the exact experience that somebody else has um, I don't create it for that reason. I create it for myself. Um, I'm of the belief that uh, that art is medicine, um, that artists are medicine people, and more times than not, the person we're trying to heal is ourselves. Hmm. And so I'm trying to navigate the space in that way. But I also know that if somebody who's had a shared experience sees something that I create and it speaks to them, yeah, and they want that, and they, they decide to take that and make that part of you know, part of themselves. Um, I accept that responsibility. It's not the goal, but it's, but I accept that as a a possibility. Um, and in terms of education, you know, I think people of color are all dealing with this. If I say anything that's off the beaten path Mm -hmm. that has a sense of informing space, identity, culture, any of those things, we're immediately labeled as an activist. Right. Right. And, and I reject that, uh, Mm -hmm. because, 
our experiences are our experiences. I, I remember being in D.C. I was one of many faces that was at the forefront of the mascot debate. Mm. And I remember somebody criticizing my work and saying, well, he's only doing that because it's relevant and it gives him a leg up without taking into consideration that I'm a father and I have children and we right. are literally navigating this mascot business in a, in a really kind of sad and scary way. Like I'm explaining to my kids, like this is how we talk in the house. Don't talk like this at school. Right. And the, the immediate thought is because like a, a, a fellow student might give your kid a hard time. No, I'm more concerned about the educator that decides that their fandom is more important than them being the an system. educator right. and bullying my child yeah. because they don't like what my child just said. Right. And so I'm coaching my kids on how to speak at school to protect themselves. Hmm. So is it convenient? Am I doing something because it's relevant or is it just happen to be relevant? And I'm a parent that's actually navigating the very things that I'm talking about. Yeah. And so, you know, activists, especially now, I think it's just such a tough thing because there's there's something attached to it. You know, the person that's looking for the book deal, the person who's looking to right. be the spokesperson. I'm not looking to be any of those things. I'm not looking for the book deal. I just want to make work. And um, and so that's where Disruptor came from because it was like, you know, I guess I'm an activist. And <laughs> one person calls an activist, you could also call an adult with an opinion. <laughs> right. And uh, But I'm always going to disrupt your spaces. Hmm. You know, it's dope to hear. Uh, I always ask that question about, like, the creation of art. Like, is it for you? Is it for the world? Is it a balance? Because every artist I talk to, they're, like, somewhere else on the spectrum, how yeah. much they think about. And I, and I don't think any of it's right or wrong in particular. I agree. It's, yeah, it's just cool to see, you know, yeah. how all these things come. I was thinking about um, for the – when you were talking about how – you, the art that you create impacts the world and then uh, the relationship of different people of color, um, how like those histories sit side by side. Yeah. When I was creating the Nat Love comic for the Denver Art Museum, um, there's a period of his life where, according to his autobiography, he was kidnapped by a native tribe. Mm -hmm. And um, he was like, he lived at, among them for like a month until he escaped, right? And so um, the... Uh, in, in trying to depict that part of it, I got really nervous yeah. for myself because I was like, all right, um, I'm not trying to do like generic, you know, like what are like what are historical, um, are, are there photos from the time? Like how did this tribe dress? That kind of thing. I can't remember the name of the tribe right yeah. now. Uh, but like how did they dress? Because I, I did not want to, um, even though that's a small part of a bigger story, I didn't want to like re-inflict a wound that's already been. Sure. Yeah. And fortunately, uh, the museum had like a Native American council who uh, helped them find pictures at the time. So, because the other thing I was like, okay, if I was just writing about it, it'd be something, but I'm drawing them in a comic, you know, mm. uh, and I don't want to not show them because then that's like removing their humanity. You know, it's just a whole yeah. thing. Yeah. But uh, I, I love like. I'm Native and I worry about that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Yeah. And uh, like, I guess, yeah, it's just an interesting thing, like, because when I was talking about our journey as Gen X, mm -hmm. how far we've come, because that's definitely not something I would have thought about, in, you know, yeah. in even the year 2000. Yeah, and no, there's an intertribal aspect of that as well. Hmm. Um, there's certain tribes, like, I just won't mess with, like, yeah. period, because um, I've crossed their paths, and it didn't go well. Huh. And um, But in the same way that, you know, like, Native people are expecting recognition, like, whose land are you on, yeah. you know, all that... Um, I am a, a, a native person of this continent, 
Uh-huh. I'm on somebody else's homelands. Mm. And so I have to recognize that stuff just as much as just as much as anybody else does. Uh-huh. In fact, I'm probably beholden to it more so I should know better mm. than, than your average person because uh, these are not my traditional homelands. Right. Yeah. So that's a that if it's done right, it affects everybody. Yeah. Not just you, it affects me too. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. It's uh it's a lot because um that ends up complicating so much of the discussion of like what you're doing and how you're doing it, like to the degree that I almost need to make sure that I'm justifying everything appropriately in, in what I'm creating and how I'm creating it. Um, one of the things I love about contemporary art is that I don't need to rely on the relics of the past in terms of representation, Mm -hmm. um, that I can, uh, I can reinvent things like what does that look like and how does that look, uh, and I can look at it in terms of futurism. I can look at it in terms yeah. of reinvention. I can look at it in in terms of abstraction. Um, so that gives me space to maneuver. But that's also an incredibly important space to be in because it is removed from the relic that we've been placed into hmm. in popular culture. This is a good conversation, man. <laughs> All right. So uh, we got your past. We kind of got like your journey. Uh, what do you what do you see as sort of like your next chapter as a as a creative? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm always creating. I'm never not creating. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you, I had three solo exhibitions last year, and now I have no idea what's next. Huh. And um, like that's a lot to do along the front range and in one place. Right. Um, so I'm not sure what's next. There's a couple things popping up. You know, um, I'm working with MCA on mm-hmm. uh, on a performance piece coming up in September, and um, and that's exciting. But uh, I mean, this business ebbs and flows. Right. Um, I've definitely been ebbing more than flowing lately, mm-hmm. and and so I'm just trying to figure out what those next steps are because within that discussion is also sustainability and you right. know being being given opportunities and platforms and you know. But but I also need to make. On some level, whether I like it or not, I have to make room for other people too. Right, it can't be the Greg Deal show all the time. Hmm. Okay, well, so you think uh, so for you this this band that you uh, just started <laughs> yeah. is it just kind of like a like a you know like a respite to get away from it, or is it another place to put your art? It's another place. Okay. Um, it's another medium to me. I mean, I'm not going to tour. This is not going to do anything <laughs> on that end. Uh, it's called the Dead Pioneers. Okay. Um, so you know, I'm poking poking some things a little bit. Right. Um, I don't think we're going to be invited, you know, to play on, uh, you know, University of Denver anytime <laughs> soon. Their mascots being the Pioneers. Oh, um, but <laughs> but I didn't even know that actually. But the uh, yeah no, it's another medium, and I'm working in a lot of mediums because it is giving me uh, space to you know stretch yeah. and flex. What do you what do you do in the band? Uh, I'm the lead singer, okay. and um, I wrote all the lyrics and then worked with a bunch of guys to kind of make everything happen. That's dope, man. Yeah. Um, we record up at the Blasting Room up in uh, Fort Collins, okay. and, um, which is owned by one of the Descendants, and uh, so cool. it's like punk rock adjacent, right. but spoken word, and yeah, it, and it all came out of a performance piece that I did and um, kind of walked into a space of like, what ifs, and hmm. then I did it, and my wife lovingly is like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you, <laughs> you got no business doing this. And, um, but I think in the art world that has a lot to do with how we work. Like yeah. if you tell me I can't do it cause, right. cause I'll, cause I'll figure it out. 
All right. So I, I try to wrap up with two questions. Yeah. Uh, one of them is uh, what is kind of like your uh, your little side pleasure, you know, like some people say guilty pleasure, but like what's the thing that you do to like, you know, feed yourself, to inspire yourself creatively? Um, Movies, music, yeah. doom scrolling on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I... I I'm watching my kids listen to music and watch movies that I love yeah. and, uh, and sort of rediscovering things like through their eyes. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. I think that's amazing. Um, but then there's also like a, an incredible set of artists, you know, on Instagram that are creating new works using new processes. And occasionally I see a process that looks really exciting and something I want to try that's available and, figure out how to incorporate it into my own practice. And yeah, so a little bit of everything. Um, I'm never not consuming one, yeah. of, one of those things, honestly and truly. Just movies have always been important. Music has always been important. So those things are always, always there. That's pretty dope, man. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then I guess just where can people uh, interact with your stuff online, in the world? Yeah, uh, gregdeal.com. I have a website, which is more of a holding place than mm. anything. Um, Things are happening in real time, usually on Instagram, which is just at Greg Deal, no spaces, uh, two two G's at the end of Greg. Yeah. Um, it's so funny. I always have to tell people to not put two L's in Allen. <laughs> I'm like, four letters more better. I have to say it to make people remember. Yeah. But with your Greg is two G, three yeah, G's total. I have a lifetime of my name being spelled wrong. And, <laughs> I um, imagine so. My mom wanted to name me Dallas, uh, huh. and my father saved my skin, and <laughs> They named me after a man I've never met, so. <laughs> but added an extra G to be different? I don't okay. know. So you would have been Dallas Deal. Yeah, that's a lot, man. <laughs> that is <laughs> I'm glad you escaped that, man. Me too. Me too. Hey, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me. It was a really good conversation. Thanks for having me, man. Like, totally. Much love. Right on. Special thank you to today's guest, Greg Deal. Thank you to the listeners. If you're not already, please be sure to subscribe to How Art is Born wherever you get your podcasts for more episodes. And if you can, leave a review. It really helps us out. Check out MCA Denver on YouTube and subscribe to the channel to watch the video version of this podcast and get behind-the-scenes clips from today's episode. Visit MCA Denver's current exhibition, Breakthroughs, celebrating Redline at 15, on view now until May 28, 2023. Howard is Born is produced and edited by Dale Johnson and executive produced by Courtney Law. Additional thanks to Rachel Grammis for their work on marketing support for this episode. 